Hebrews chapter 2. Amen. Hebrews chapter 2. Praise God. Well, you know, just by way of reflecting, um, the Saturday evening before our first Sunday service, this would have been Saturday, June the 6th, 1998 in the evening. Um, we were there getting some things prepared and some different folks were just praying and they turned to pray over me and different ones prayed that night and our brother Tom Roberts, he, he prayed that every sermon I preached would give birth to two or three more. And if you think about that, it's kind of hard to keep up. You know, I mean, if, if one sermon gives birth to three, and then those three give birth to three more, there's an exponential factor there, right? I don't th- what Tom didn't understand is that one of my biggest arguments, you know, resistance, whatever, to, to, to actually obeying the Lord and, and starting the church was I, I wasn't sure that I would be able to preach that many sermons a week. I, you know, three sermons a week, how in the world ever? You've got to keep in mind that, you know, everybody in those days was a volunteer, and I still was running cabinet business, but even back in the days when I was a full-time minister, trying to come up with one sermon a week was such a challenge for me. And so, um, and I can honestly say that, that um, you know, over the years, it's, there's never been a lack of something from the word and from the Lord and from the heart of God and the Holy Spirit to say when we're together and that's just, I'm not telling you that to pat myself on the back, I'm telling you that's just the Holy Spirit at work and um, so one of the things that, that I do I'm not sure exactly why I'm going here tonight but just as we begin, let me just say this, one of the things that I do is as the Lord leads me to a subject I'll begin to develop notes, sometimes those notes are just in a document by themselves and then from that I'll begin to organize sermons and so they come like for instance here that's a slide I just clicked a button on this iPad and it put it up on the screen and so from those verses you know there's different parts of those passages that the Holy Spirit and this is the way I know how to say it it's like he breathes on it um, there's coals of fire and um, if you know, it can almost look like a coal is is like dead that there's no fire in it but if you know if you breathe on it, all of a sudden it it starts to glow it starts to heat up and so as as I go through these things it's like there's different parts of it I've probably got enough I probably got enough sermons just on this iPad to preach probably to Christmas are you, are you, just for a Wednesday night and so how we know or how I try to understand what the Lord wants to say to us tonight is the part of it he's breathing on. The part of it he's breathing on. Now sometimes he breathes on it days in advance, weeks in advance. Other times there's part that he waits to almost the last minute to breathe on it, right? And, um, and so that's kind of a little bit of the case tonight, but I want to I read some of these verses to you and then we're going to comment. Does that sound good? Are you, are you blessed tonight? I'm so excited that you're here. And among other things tonight, and, and when I say among other things, there's other things we're going to talk about that are connected to this, but the most important thing, always the most important thing, is for you to see Jesus and for you to see Him and His love for you a little better than you did 
the last time, and, and we're growing up into that. Amen. So beginning at verse number 14, it says, Inasmuch then as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared in the same, that through death he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and release those who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. For indeed, he does not give aid to angels, but he does give aid to the seed of Abraham. Therefore, in all things, he had to be made like his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in the things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. That word propitiation means simply that he took the wrath, the punishment that you deserved for you. For in that he himself has suffered being tempted, he is able to aid those who are tempted. All right? Now, when this was originally written, it wasn't written in chapter and verse. And that's one of the things that the Holy Spirit really brought to my attention, um, that I'm leaving some stuff out that's, that's a real important connection. And so it almost seems like, well, chapter 3, we're starting a whole nother thing, a whole nother thought, and we're not. It's the same thought, right? So let me read verse 18 of chapter 2, and then without interruption, go straight into chapter 3, verse 1. For in that he himself has suffered being tempted, he is able to aid those who are tempted. Therefore, holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling, consider the high priest, the apostle and high priest of our confession, Christ Jesus. So there is a connection here and an important connection between you and me being tempted, Jesus becoming like us and knowing what it is like to be tempted so that He can help us when we're tempted. But all of that is connected with and by the first word in chapter 3, verse 1, the word therefore. Therefore is a connecting word. It simply means in light of what you just heard, in light of what you just read, in light of what was just presented to you. Well, what was just presented to you? What was just presented to you is that Jesus is a faithful high priest. And He's a faithful high priest because He had to be made like us in order to do for us what needed to be done for us. And having been made like us, He suffered being tempted as us, yet without sin, so that He is now able to not, under, not only understand what it's like to be tempted, but He knows exactly what you need when you are tempted so that you can be successful through the test trials and temptations that, are, uh, you know, that you're facing or that are still before you in your future. But then he brings up this idea, this thought, that on the surface seems maybe unrelated or just like he's connecting or bridging us to another thought, yet I'm telling you tonight, don't make that mistake, and I'm going to show it to you in another passage, that the confession that he's referring to here, that Jesus is the apostle and high priest of, is at the heart of why you and me, you and I are tempted um, and tested and tried by the enemy. 
It all comes back to that confession. Now, the, what is a confession? Well, in natural terms, if someone, let's say someone confesses to a crime, let's say that an individual is accused of a crime, well, if they deny that crime, then they're not, com they're not confessing to it. They're, they're actually doing the opposite. They're saying that they did not do whatever it is that they're accused of. But if you did it, and, and if that person did it, and they decide to confess, then the word confess simply means to agree with or to say the same as. To agree with or to say the same as. That's what it means to confess. Now, in a moment, if we get there, we're going to see later in the book of Hebrews, he's going to take confession and he's going to expand it and he's going to add to it your confession of faith. Your confession of faith. Now, let's, let's take a step back for a moment, okay? Because remember that the foundational text for this Wednesday evening study, at least so far this year, is 2 Corinthians 5 and 7. We walk by faith, not by sight. By sight is how the world goes about doing life. That's what it, what it means to walk. It's how you go about it. How you, how you, you know, do a, a particular thing. And in this particular case, the thing we're talking about is life and living. And so he says, we don't walk by sight, but instead we walk by faith, not by sight. So to walk by sight means to, I know I've said this over and over again, I'm under assignment to keep telling you this, all right? I hope that we say it so often that you're telling everybody you know eventually in conversations. It just spills out of you. It's in your heart in so much abundance. But again, let's get back to it. To walk by sight means to align your thoughts, your words, and your actions with the way things look, seem, and feel. Right? That's what it means to walk by sight. And again, that's the way the overwhelming majority of people on planet Earth live their lives. But we're not the overwhelming majority, right? We're, we're, we're a chosen generation. We're, we're, we're a different breed. We're, we're born of a different spirit. And because we're born of a different spirit, we have the opportunity, the privilege, the honor to rise above sight-based living, sense-realm-based living, and, and to live our lives by faith. Faith is when you align your thoughts, words, and actions with what God has said, right? In spite of there being no evidence in your life right now to say it's true. So when he's talking about holding fast to your confession, when he's talking about Jesus being the apostle and high priest of your confession, he's talking about something in your life where you have aligned your thoughts, words, and actions with the Word of God. You've begun to confess out of your mouth, I am strong, I am rich, I am healed, I am blessed, I am debt free, my children are taught of the Lord, great is the peace of my children, my family is restored. My, you follow what I'm saying? We begin to confess out of our mouth aligning our thoughts, words, and actions with what God has said about you, with what God has said about your family, with what God has said about your future. Amen. And we begin to confess that out of our mouths, calling things that be not as though they were in our lives. Now the devil's going to challenge that if you hadn't figured that out by now. 
There's a reason why it's called the fight of faith. It's because there's a fight involved here. Satan's not just going to sit back and let you lay hold of everything that belongs to you as a child of God without trying to bring some kind of resistance to you. And he knows the fastest way to interrupt faith producing results in your life is to get you to back off of your alignment with God's Word when it comes to your thoughts, words, and actions. Let me say it another way. He's going to try to get you to say something to contradict your faith confession. I just don't know why everything happens to me. I don't understand why I can't get ahead in life. If it weren't for bad luck, I'd have no luck at all. Blah, 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 blah. See, that's, the devil's putting them thoughts, right? The devil's planting those thoughts in your heart. And he's wanting you to water them by confessing them out of your mouth. He's wanting you to um, you know, get all fired up on a Wednesday night and start confessing good things over yourself, over your life, over your family. And then when it doesn't happen quick enough or because your mind's not renewed quite enough yet, he's trying, putting pressure on you, testing you, tempting you, trying you to try to pressure you back into shifting over into aligning your thoughts, words, and actions with the way things look, seem, and feel. Jesus knows what that feels like. Did you hear me? Jesus knows what that feels like as a man. He became a man so that he could know and understand what that was like. There's a lot of key stuff here. Two things I want to point out before we move to the next passage. In, um, in verse 17 it says, he had to be made like us. And that means, from verse 14, he was a partaker of flesh and blood. Partaken means equal share in. An equal share in flesh and blood. He had to be made like us. And in verse 18, I want you to notice that it says that he suffered. He suffered. Now, don't misunderstand me, please. He suffered on the cross. He suffered when they put that crown of thorns on his head. He suffered when they beat him with a whip. He suffered when they punched him in the face. He suffered when they jerked out his beard. Are you hearing me? All of that, okay? And, and I'm by no means trying to diminish that, but when it says here that he suffered, here it says that he suffered being tempted. He experienced it. He experienced it. Amen. So he knows what it's like. And he knows what you need. He knows how to help. Amen. Now, go with me to Hebrews chapter 4. Thank you, Jesus. Hebrews chapter 4. And this time... We're going to begin, and I'm going to read quite a few verses to you, okay? We may not have time to get to all of them tonight. But again, same principle as the last passage. This was not written in chapter and verse. And so he doesn't end the thought when chapter 4 ends, but the thought continues, spills over, and carries on through several verses in chapter 5. So with that said now, I'm going to just keep reading when we come to the chapter break as if it's not there, okay? So, beginning at verse number 14. 
seeing then that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. There it is again, right? For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. For every high priest is taken from among men, from ev- for, for every high priest taken from among men is appointed for men in things pertaining to God that he may offer both gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can have compassion on those who are ignorant and going astray since he himself is also subject to weakness. Because of this, he is required as for the people, so also for himself, to offer sacrifices for sins. And no man takes this honor to himself, but he who is called by God just as Aaron was. Let's keep reading. Verse 5. So also Christ did not glorify himself to become high priest, But it was he who said to him, You are my son, today I have begotten you. As he also says in another place, You are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek, who in the days of his flesh, when he had offered up prayers and supplications with vehement cries and tears to him, who was able to save him from death and was heard, this is speaking of Jesus now, Jesus was heard because of his godly fear. Though he was a son, yet he learned obedience by the things which he suffered. And having been perfected, he became the author of eternal salvation to all who obey him, called by God as high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. Now, as if we don't have enough up on the table already, turn over with me one more page, or you may not even have to, one more chapter to Ephesians chapter 6. I'm sorry, (laughs) Hebrews chapter 6, verse 19 and 20. Hebrews chapter 6, verse 19 and 20. This hope we have as an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast, and which enters the presence behind the veil, where the forerunner has entered for us, even Jesus, having become high priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. I'm going to step away from my notes for a moment because sometimes notes just confuse me. Praise God. First of all, for those of you who are not familiar with this concept of Melchizedek, that's a big word like mayonnaise, isn't it? Amen. This is speaking of the eternal priesthood of God. Melchizedek, the Bible says, was without beginning, without ending, without mother, without father. In other words, this is, without trying to confuse you, this is Jesus appearing to Abraham before he came as a man through the womb of the Virgin Mary. 
And of course, this was the Melchizedek that Abraham paid tithes to after experiencing a great, a great victory. Now, the reason that's pointed out here in the book of Hebrews is because Hebrew people, Jewish people, were familiar with the concept of a Levitical priesthood. If you've ever heard that, or the book of Leviticus, the root of that word is Levi, L-E-V-I. And Levi was simply one of the twelve sons, and it was the twelve sons' families that created or formed the twelve tribes of Israel. Are you with me? And so it was the descendants of Levi that became priests for the rest of the nation of Israel. So when Jesus came to this earth, He was not born from the tribe of Levi. And this confused a lot of Jewish people. They said, well, the Messiah is to be the new priest, the high priest, and Jesus cannot be the new high priest because He was not born of Levi, and in order to be a priest, you have to be from Levi's tribe. Well, the writer of Hebrews is correcting this error because Jesus did not come according to the order of Levi, the Levitical priesthood, but He came according to the order of Melchizedek, an eternal priesthood. A priesthood without beginning, without ending. Amen. Now, what has made Jesus our high priest is what we read about a priest in order to be, to qualify. Remember, He had to be made like us. In order to qualify in the eyes of God, the priest had to be taken from among men. In other words, if all we needed was a high priest, Jesus could have been that priest for us without coming to this earth. But we didn't need a high priest of that sort. We needed a high priest who was taken from among us. And so in order for Jesus to be taken from among us, He had to come and be one of us in order to be taken from among us, in order to know what it's like to experience the weakness of flesh. So He became flesh condemned sin in the flesh by fulfilling the righteous requirement of the law without sin, yet tempted in all points like as we are. He did that not just to prove that it could be done, but He did that in order to give you and me the credit that we had to have in order to be in right standing before God as men and women who have also done it. Amen. Not ourselves, not our obedience, but Jesus' obedience on our behalf. Now, I'm going to go down this road for just a minute, okay? If you understand just a little bit about creation in general, you are without excuse when it comes to believing there is a God. Now, I've said sat something similar to that or like that over, over the years, and some people get offended by that. And some people, you know, Pastor Mark's so arrogant, just up there cramming that down. No, 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 just please hear me. For you to have that argument is, is, to, 
you're embarrassing yourself. You're embarrassing yourself. You, you, you're talking foolishly. You, you, you may not believe that He is Jehovah Yahweh, but I'm telling you, there is an intelligent designer somewhere behind what we call life on this planet. Some of you heard me tell this story. I was raking some bark mulch off some weeds to pull out of the flower bed the other day and I uncovered what I didn't know at first what it was. It turns out I uncovered a rabbit's nest. I've heard of all kinds of nests. I never heard of a rabbit's nest. A mother rabbit come and dug a hole in my flower bed, took straw and lined that hole with straw, then plucked out her own fur and lined that hole with fur, had some babies in there, put fur on top of them babies, then put more straw on top of them, then covered the whole thing almost up with bark. I've seen rabbits in my neighborhood. I've never seen one anywhere near my house, Terry. Turns out that mama rabbit comes back when nobody's looking and nurses them babies twice a day and covers them back up. And we're just to believe that all that happened when absolutely nothing blew up and it all formed into these... Are you following what I'm saying? I, I, could, I did it a couple of weeks ago on a Monday morning at the foundry. I could go for hours. Just the DNA code that tells your eyes what to do and your kidneys what to do. It's 33 billion characters long. It would take 31 years reading it night and day just to read the entire code. And it's only made out of four digits, four letters, four chemicals. It's much easier to believe that somebody somewhere is out there that's way smarter than us, just like I'm way smarter than my puppy. But my puppy's smart. That rabbit's smart. I'm smarter than that rabbit, but that rabbit's smart. How arrogant is it for us to believe that, well, we're smarter than other things, other living things, but there's no way there could be a living being that's smarter than me. Are you kidding me? So you say, okay, well, Pastor Mark, I'll give you that one, but how do you know which God? Because there's all kinds of religions, and there's all kinds of gods, and there's, there's all kinds of... You know, uh, this group says you should worship this God and this and all the other stuff, and it just kind of all tends to blend together to me. You know, there's people who have that argument, right? Well, again, just slow your roll for a minute because you don't realize how you're embarrassing yourself. There is a difference. There is a very big difference. You see, the true and living God in a world, especially in Jesus' day, when royalty would not even, I'm talking about like earthly royalty, would not even let their feet touch dirt? Are you understand what I'm saying? Jesus? God comes and lives among us? Let me tell you how you can tell the difference between the true and living God and all these false gods. All these other false gods are asking you to serve them. Our God, the true God, the Creator, He came and served us. He came and served us. How bizarre. There are dictators in this world. The dictator of North Korea. 
He tells His people He doesn't have to go to the bathroom. He tells His people that He is a God and to be worshipped as a God. And as a God, He doesn't even have to digest food to live. It's the image that He's trying to portray. Our God kicked that thing into the abyss. Are you understanding what I'm saying? He's not trying to make you believe something about Him that's not true. He became like you so you could know who He really is. And was not insecure about that one little bit. I'm old enough to remember the days in the state of Alabama when we executed prisoners by the electric chair. Are you hearing what I'm saying? Well, it would be pretty ridiculous for us. What do they yellow mama? What do they call that thing? Is it yellow mama, Bill? How silly would it be for you and me to wear a yellow, uh, uh, some kind of, some kind of emblem of the yellow mama around our necks? I mean, there's redneck, and then there's redneck, right? I mean, yeah. But do you realize that's what a cross is? A cross is a symbol of reproach. It would be like it would be like you, and if, if I'm getting too close to home here, I'm not trying to. I mean, I understand. Praise God, we're a diverse bunch. But it would be like somebody wearing an emblem of an electric chair around their neck because they're so proud that their relative was put to death in it. But we wear a cross because we want the world to know that our God and the Creator of the universe was killed on one of those. Doesn't sound like a very powerful God, does it? I mean, how powerful is your God, Pastor Mark, if people can put Him to death? You're telling me He created us and we killed Him? Yeah, right. You see how bizarre it sounds? I mean, it, it, it's one of those things that it's so far-fetched it has to be some truth to it. What's the old saying? You can't make this stuff up? You wouldn't make this up. In other words, I don't want to start calling names, but you know, we, we've had more than one embarrassment in the governor's mansion in Alabama over the course of my lifetime. Amen or oh me. We want our leaders to be almost untouchable. We want our leaders... Are you, are you understand what I'm saying? Not... Jesus hung out with... Listen, if you are a, if you are a religious person, and I, and I pray, I thank God that we're different and that God continues to grow us up in His love, but do, do you realize how many people, if Jesus was alive today, doing what Jesus did when Jesus was on this earth, hanging out with who Jesus hung out with when Jesus was on this earth, He wouldn't be welcome in a lot of churches in this state. He would be judged just like He was judged when He was here. 
He would be looked down on just like He was looked down on. What? He would be ignored just like He was ignored. He would be considered too radical. He would be considered uh, you know, uh, too divisive. Uh, he, he, he's, he's not tolerant enough. He washed our feet. He became one of us. No, no, no other religion dares make these claims. Think about it. You're, on one hand, you're trying to say, this is the great and powerful God who created the universe, who came to earth and was murdered by us. You see, these things don't, they don't jive, yet that's exactly why if you're on the fence about these things, you ought to really and truly start considering what's real up in here and who's real up in here and that this God does not set up in heaven and demand your obedience, but He wants your love and in order to have your love, He loved you unconditionally first. Is this making sense to you what I'm trying to say? I could say it in tongues but I could say it in English. This is our King. King who created and ruled over the universe but loved us so much that He came, became one of us, experienced life as us, in the process did for us what needed to be done, took back from the devil what we turned over to him as a man so that now as men and women, we can also enjoy that victory because a man turned the keys over, now a man came and took them back. That's why we have victory in him now. So he says that Jesus is the Apostle and High Priest of our, your, confession. Hebrews 6 says, we have this hope as an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast, which enters the presence behind the veil, where the forerunner has entered for us. Even Jesus, having become a high priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. What is he saying? He's saying not only is Jesus ready and available to help you when you're tempted concerning the Word, when you confess the Word on earth, He is behind the veil in heaven in the holy of holies in heaven, in the throne room of heaven, representing before God the Father what you have spoken and confessed here on earth. On earth as it is in heaven.
I don't have time to get into all this tonight. It's, I'm, I'm, asked, I'm after time, past time. Let me, let me just say this one last thing if I could. And we'll get into it in greater detail. All of this is leading up to us studying when Jesus was tempted on this earth as a man. And when I talk about the Holy Spirit breathing on something, I thought this part, we would study the temptations and then go to this part. But He's wanting us to do it differently. And I'm, I think I'm seeing more and more why now, you know, once we understand you know, what He did and, and that He did it as a man, not as God with a little skin pulled over Himself, and, and, and He had to be made like us to do it. And then the Bible says that He learned obedience through the things that He suffered. The Passion Translation says this. He learned how to listen and obey by the things that he endured. And now he's able to help you and me with what is perhaps the most important lesson we could ever learn. And that's the lesson to what? Listen and obey. Praise God. Praise God. Now, I know you're going to be here next week, but let me just go ahead and say it now. Don't, don't make the mistake that some people make, okay? That, because see, when, when I learn obedience, <clears throat> there's some disobedience uh, in the pot with that obedience. At the same, you follow what I'm saying? There's... Don't make the mistake that some people make in, in thinking that, well, Jesus learned obedience, and in the process of learning obedience, he also disobeyed. Absolutely not. Have you ever stopped to think about this? If Jesus had disobeyed, it would have disqualified him from being our substitute, our sacrifice. Tempted in all points like as we are yet without sin, but still, our Creator became one of us so that he could experience, among other things, but so that he could experience tests, trials, and temptations as us in order to learn what it is and what it's like, experience it, to now be in a position in heaven behind the veil as our faithful high priest. Father, we love you. This subject is so rich, Father. It's so important. We could talk about it for hours and hours and hours, Lord, and I, I know that it's getting late. Father, tonight, I just, um, just pray that you would help us all consider. That's, that's one of the words that's used in these verses. To consider Jesus. To, to set our thoughts. To, to set our hearts. To set our minds on our representative, our, the apostle and high priest of our confession. Father, that, that we would begin to consider what humility, what sacrifice for Him to come and be one of us so that He could help us when we are tempted. Father, this also, I think, 
among many other things, emphasizes how important it is that we not cave in when we're tempted. That we indeed hold fast our confession. That we do not allow the enemy to redirect our thoughts and then eventually our words and actions away from you and your word, but that we would set our hearts and our minds and our affections upon you. Father, thank you for the men and women in this room. Thank you, Father, for the difference that they're each one making in the world, Lord, that, um, that they live in and in, in, in the place where you have them planted right now. Father, I thank you that we are growing up into Jesus in all things. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. And amen. Shake somebody's hand, hug somebody's neck, love somebody in Jesus. Thank you so much for being here tonight.